Hello to all of our screen-watching listeners in the desired demographics. This week on the show, we're talking about movies driven by intellectual property. We've got looks at new movies and TV shows involving He-Man and the Masters of the Universe, Turner and Hooch, Marvel stuff, and filmmakers who are daring to spit in the face of commercially driven art by producing original movies. Disgusting. This is screen-watching. This is not like TV, only better. Television! Teacher! Mother! Secret lover. What, that's it? That's your movie? Well, I said that I had an idea for a movie. Folks, you are listening to Screen Watching, Australia's most vaccinated film and TV podcast. My name is Dan Barrett. I'm joined here by the freshly vaccinated Mr. Simon Foster. I am freshly vaccinated. I'm one down with one to go. Um, and I was quite the tough guy. Uh, when she came at me with that needle, I braced myself and it didn't hurt as anywhere near as much as I thought it was. Get out there and get vaccinated, people. Do yourself a favour. Um, how are you, Dan Barry? Well, I'm going to send you a lollipop in the mail. Uh, look, I'm doing fine. I've been vaccinated now for well over a month. And look, I've seen all the 5Gs. I know everything. It's very exciting. It's definitely all go yeah. for me from now forward. Simon Foster... We've got a lot to get through on this week's show. We've got a whole bunch of interesting reviews. We're going to look at the new M. Night Shyamalan film, Old. I'm going to take a gander at Turner and Hooch. Uh, we've got Shiva Baby, which is a very cool little indie film, and we're going to talk about that in a little bit. Uh, He-Man and the Masters of the Universe, that back, Simon, and boy, could we not be more excited. There's, <laughs> there's a thing called Chernobyl 1986. I don't know what that is. Is it based on a true story? We'll find out. And we're also going to take a look at uh, Loki as it finished up that first season. I'm going to take another swing back at Run the World, which was a show I talked about a couple of months ago on the podcast. A little bit of Ted Lasso action. We're going to deeper dive, Simon, into M. Night Shyamalan and some of those great twists. So spoiler alert, we're going to ruin them. It's... Dinks. This is screen watching, and we're going to kick things off by talking about the aforementioned Mr. M. Knight with his new film, Old. Body has decomposed. How quickly can that happen? Seven years. But she just died. Wait, where are the kids? Trent! Kara! Come here! Hey, have you seen my children? Mom? I'm, I'm right here. Dad, why are you looking at me like that? He's the master of the cool premise, M. Night Shyamalan. Interesting the way you say it. Maybe I should have a revisit to how we pronounce his name. He's back with Old, a new twisty Twilight zone story about a secluded beach that ages all who visit it at an alarming rate. Now, once you're on the beach, there's no way out of it. You panic, not quite believing what's unfolding. Then the best and worst of human nature plays out. Then you think deeply about your predicament, and then it's over, which sort of sums up to varying degrees the M. Night Shyamalan movie-going experience. Now, in Old, we meet Guy, played by Gail Garcia Bernal, and Prissa, played by Vicky Creeps, a married couple on the verge of separation who decide to visit a resort with their kids Maddox and Trent. Now, convinced by the resort owner that the place to visit is a private beach on the other side of the island, the family join an uppity surgeon, played by Rufus Sewell, his trophy wife, the very brilliant Abby Lee, and their toddler daughter in a minivan driven by the director himself, Bad Omen, and are on their way. Now, Old is 
M. Night Shyamalan at his most playful. There is, dare I say it, a sixth sense at work here. He seems to know how entirely preposterous the concept of his latest film is and that it really only exists for him to toy around with and that gives his storytelling a really buoyant, kind of a giddy, devil-may-care sense of fun. It's riddled with inconsistencies. Guy and Prissa barely age visibly, though they do suffer the effects of aging, while Maddox grows into Thomas and Mackenzie and Trent as Alex Wolfe becomes a teen father. Don't ask. There's almost too many avenues for M. Night to explore. He throws up a lot of maybes and what-ifs, like the moment one character with a calcium deficiency loses their bone mass exponentially. It's wonderfully ridiculous, played out with the expertly crafting filmmaking skill of a director who knows he can carry his audience along on sheer bravado alone. I'm a Shyamalan fan, and this is one of my favourite Shyamalan films. Not one of his smartest, but I had a good time watching it. I found this film really frustrating in the exact same way I find all of his films really frustrating, except for The Happening, which is a genius, like just brilliant movie from oh beginning to God. end. But my frustration with him is, is that I don't think he's the strongest writer when it comes to dialogue. There's always a very off performance that's coming from every actor, and that's very much on display here, which has, because it's so heavily set in a um, landscape of maybe like 15 to 20 meters in depth and width, like, it's very much as though they're all in a very gorgeous-looking room. And so, like, you're really relying on that dialogue to do a lot of the heavy lifting and just the cadence that I think he gets a lot of his actors to start working through. While it works in films like The Happening, which kind of felt like a bit of a Twilight zone sort of throwback, here it feels a bit more like a stage play and everything just feels very stilted and very awkward. And I really struggled with it in this film in a way that I'm kind of okay with it in some of his other films. While I thought it was a really great, like, great premise and the execution was kind of interesting, I did feel he didn't really quite go far enough in some ways. Like there was certainly a lot of hints at body horror, but he never really played around in that space that much. Like there's definitely some great body horror in a final sequence in a cave, but there's, I don't know, you've got these great things where you've got these teenagers who are going from being like, you know, four years old, I think the youngest one is, and then they sort of grow up through various stages of life. Um, spoiler alert, people get old. As, as is evident from the very beginning, as all the dialogue is based around the fact of, oh, you know, you're young now, but, you know, enjoy it while it lasts because you're not going to be young forever, wink. And that's the first 15 minutes worth of dialogue. Yeah, look, but, and, and you're but right. But I'm just saying, like, these teenagers, like, they grow up to become teenagers. And obviously, like, teenagers change body shapes and they go through various stages of puberty and become adults and there's various shifts within that. But he doesn't play with that at all outside of the fact of the mother going, oh, my God, you're older. And you don't really get a real sense for these kids as they're actually experiencing this change happening within them beyond the girl who's told by her mother to go and get, like, a replacement bikini because she's a little bit um, big for what she's got on. She's become a little more curvaceous here. Mm. Um, Vicky Creeps has, as Prisha, her character is a um, uh, museum creator, which I sort of hints at the lack. Yeah, exactly. She doesn't create the museum as much as she looks after what goes into it. Exactly right. Yeah, and and uh, that is and that is, um, uh, I guess, sort of plays into the uh, aging. Uh, she's surrounded herself with old things, and she explores that. Um, and and that sort of is the level of subtlety that M Night brings to this film in particular, and his films in general. Um, I've got to say, I thought his 
the, the single setting, the beach, uh, and the skill with which he captured all of that, and that's the filmmaking sort of bravado that I alluded to. Mm. That's that was enough for me to get by. And I agree, some of his dialogue is a little bit patchy. Um, but I also thought that the, the 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 actors, especially Rufus Sewell as the surgeon, um, really threw themselves into to, to their roles. I thought I thought it all worked as a kind of like a chamber piece, although it's set on this vast expanse of beach. So. Um, I, I guess we're coming at this from different points of view because I really enjoyed it, um, and I am—I'm the first to admit that I'm open to these twisty Shyama Lemon um, uh, works, and I, I got to say I, I really enjoyed it. Look, don't get me wrong—I enjoy this. I think people should definitely check it out. We're currently in lockdown, which means that a good portion of the country can't go along and see it. If you're in a lockdown area and you're thinking, "God, I really wish I could have gone to the cinema to see old." Don't freak out too much. You're not really necessarily missing out that much. You get a chance to go and see it. And if you catch it on a smaller screen, you're going to be okay with that. It's not necessarily, it's not top tier M. Night by any means. But I do think that anyone who gets along to see it will have a good time with it, even if they go, can you believe he did that? And as a can you believe he did that, one of my can you believes is that M. Night, who quite often puts himself into movies in sort of Mm. sometimes fairly small roles, sometimes very small but pivotal roles, He's, again, in this in a fairly small, but it's incredibly pivotal in a way that I don't see, have never really seen him put himself into one of his movies to the depth that he has here. Yeah, well, we may discuss Lady in the Water a little bit later, but he certainly put himself at the centre of that film in a, in a manner that is considered um, a high point of, how can we say, uh, egomania. But anyway, <laughs> that's M. Night for you. Um, I haven't seen let's that Let's move on to... Let's move on to the Disney Plus series, a reboot, rehash, reworking of the old Tom Hanks film, Turner and Hooch. That's definitely a re-something. Hey, Scotty. This is Hooch. There's food, at least some toys. This one's his favorite. Mr. Horsey. What are you talking about? Did Mom call you? Your father wanted you to have Hooch. He rescued him from the shelter. He said it was almost like the original Hooch came back. I can't take care of him. I'm working all the time, and I'm just still trying to prove myself here, Mom. In 1989, Tom Hanks starred opposite a dog named Beasley in the mega-hit Touchstone Pictures comedy Turner and Hooch. It was, like most cop films from the 80s, about a pair of mismatched crime fighters, Turner, a neat and tidy cop, with his new partner, a huge slobbery dog named Hooch, that was the sole witness to his friend's murder. In 2021, Josh Peck stars opposite a number of dogs portraying Hooch. Peck's Turner is a neat and tidy cop, Hooch is a big slobbery dog. The difference here is that Hooch hasn't dealt with the trauma of witnessing a murder. Instead, Hooch was raised by Turner's dad who recently died, but left Hooch to him. The hook here is that Turner's late dad was Tom Hanks' Turner character from the original film. Yes, enjoy that conversation with your kids on the couch as you explain to them that both Turner and Hooch from the first film that you all loved when you watched it on Disney Plus recently are both now dead in the new show. Josh Peck is amiable enough in the lead role, even if audiences are quietly wishing it was Colin Hanks in the lead role instead, and the show moves briskly with a cheerful enough supporting cast. The show does, as you'd expect, recreate several gags from the first film, with the dog destroying a bunch of stuff at Turner's house and slobbering all over him as he wakes up. It's all generic and trashy, but I gotta be honest, there were a couple of times where I laughed out loud and was actually cheering for the dog. This isn't great TV, but it's fun and I got a kick out of watching it. The new version of the show is from Matt Nix, he's the guy responsible for the series Burn Notice, which was a fairly charming, fairly watchable spy action adventure show from the mid-2000s. He was also the showrunner on a really fun buddy cop show from the mid-2010s, starring Bradley Whitford and Colin Hanks. So it's not like Nix doesn't already have an in with the Hanks crowd. And even though we didn't get Colin Hanks, at least we definitely didn't get Chet Hanks. 
Turner and Hooch, it's not appointment TV, and I can't imagine many people binge-watching the show. But also, if you've got some kids in the house or you really want something that's diverting to pass the time with, this will fit the bill really nicely. Yeah, look, I think it'll play okay with the family audience. I watched the first episode as well. Um, this is about as low an effort as anyone could put in when the term <laughs> let's reboot an old franchise comes up. Let's, let's grab an old property, um, see if we can take advantage of the name, um, bring with it all the goodwill that Tom Hanks and Beasley created in that first film, and let's just get something on screen. That's what this feels like. It's it's bare bones creativity. Um, it's that just very naff kind of small vision filmmaking and TV making that um, is all over network television. This doesn't scream a, a major production for for Disney Plus at all. I got problems with Joss Peck. <laughs> what all this all this made me think was that what an incredible force Tom Hanks was. In that period when Turner and Hooch came out, he was coming off uh, Bachelor Party, Splash, Turner and Hooch, then Big, um, and everybody was excited to see the next Tom Hanks from what this young actor full of vibrancy, full of life could bring to the role. Um, I know it's unfair to compare Josh Peck to, to Tom Hanks and what uh, was done with the original film, but it's sorely lacking that sort of vibrancy, that energy. So like you say, it'll play okay. Although it's an hour-long series. That strikes me as odd. It's a, it's, a, it's an hour-long per episode, and I thought this was definitely a half-hour gig for sure, but Turner and Hooch is on Disney+. Plus. I probably only just felt like an hour for you. It's like a 40 to 45-minute show. Like You kind of hit the nail on the head when you mentioned it at network TV. This is very much an old-school premise pilot. So it's taking yeah. the bones of the film and truncating that down to the 40-odd-minute run time and essentially it's unfair maybe to judge the show necessarily on this pilot episode this being like an old school premise pilot this is a show that probably needs to be judged more by what they're doing in episode five and six once they've actually worked out what the show is doing but also like who's got time these days necessarily to want to wait around to episode five and six and then judge the show from there we've already made our choice based on the first episode so does a premise pilot work in 2021 not too sure I think generally it's fine. It's not great. Um, you know, Josh Peck, I can certainly understand why you'd have some problems with him. Um, he, like, I think he's amiable, but also he's not bringing anything special. Simon, let's move on. Let's have a chat about the new indie film, Shiva Baby. Danielle! Don't Danielle! Please don't yell. is here and her daughter Stephanie. Jessica. Whatever. You should really talk to her, you know? No. It's just a job. Darling. Hi, Hi, Hi Mom. I'm so sorry for your loss. No funny business with Maya. Thank you. You think everyone that's bi is experimenting? You have zero gaydar. Excuse me, kid. I lived through New York in the 80s. My gaydar is strong as a bull. The white-knuckle world of anxiety cinema has given up some classics from Martin Scorsese's best movie, After Hours, yeah, you heard me, to the Safdie brothers' classic Uncut Gems, films in which characters do their best to get themselves into worlds that they don't have the character to escape from. Now, in Shiver Baby, college student Danielle is faced with a series of awkward encounters at a day-long shiver, which is a Jewish gathering during a time of mourning. Um, amongst her overbearing relatives, she becomes increasingly rattled by the presence of an ex-girlfriend and a of her secret sugar daddy who unexpectedly arrives with his shiksa wife and obnoxious baby. Now this is a world drawn from the reality of writer-director Emma Seligman uh, and brought to life on screen by lead actress Rachel Senot and their pairing may be the most precisely perfect matchup of movie talents in half a decade as Danielle's world closes in around her. Seligman 
focuses her camera tighter and tighter on Senate's face until you, the viewer, start to look for ways to escape the frame. So awkwardly intimate does the experience become. Um, as the ex-lover, Molly Gordon is in every frame even when she isn't, such as is the richness and complexity of her character. And Danielle's mum, played by Polly Draper, um, exists in a world that is part Jewish matriarch, part empty nester, and her struggle is tangibly heartbreaking. Um, the, the setting is an orthodox Jewish wake, and Seligman leans heavily on stereotypes to the point of absurdism at times. But this is also a mechanism by which to break down the, the audience's own preconceptions. This is not just any Jew story. This is Danielle's, a directionless millennial faced with unsure career prospects and a waning sexual relevance, caught in the crosshairs of her family's expectations. Ultimately, her Jewishness is irrelevant. We've all been some aspect of Danielle at some point. That's why this cringing, beautiful, painful, sexy, sweet film is for everyone. Um, I loved Shiver Baby. It's one of my favorite films this year. Look, I'm really high on this movie. In fact, I sent you a text message after I saw it saying, Simon, you've got to check mm. out this movie. Look, this is definitely one of the best horror movies of the year. It's a horror movie because it's dealing <laughs> with family primarily, but like it really is structured and shaped like a horror film. It's probably the most Jewish movie that I think I've seen in some time. And despite the fact that it is so Jewish to the point that you're looking at the cast saying, look, if Jackie Hoffman isn't turning up in this film in a short while, like they've failed, mm. and then Jackie Hoffman appears on screen. Yeah. Like not only to have Jackie Hoffman, I've also got Fred Melamed. And if you don't know those two by name, look them up, Google image them, and you'll be like, oh, of course, like that makes all the sense in the world. This is incredibly Jewish. But at the same time, I think that anyone who comes from a, I'm going to use the word sort of an ethnic family. So I think about my own background, which is like Slovenian, Italian. Like I saw so much of my own family and the various pressures placed on young people within these families from like this gathering. I went to a family wedding back in March this year and almost the exact same questions that are being leveled at the girl in this, like I heard either being leveled at me or my cousins in the room. So like this is a universally relevant movie for so many of us. It's funny. It's uh, like, as he said, like it's a little bit sexy in a way that kind of makes no sense when you start thinking back on the movie, but like you certainly get that mm. vibe through it all. It's There's some interesting stuff going on in this film. I think people need to check this one out. Yeah, it's all drawn from the director, uh, Emma Seligman's um, past. In fact, if you get a look at Emma and then look at her lead actress, Rachel, they look exactly the same. They're clearly <laughs> yeah. cut, she's clearly casting her own image, um, and it's all drawn from her own experience. And that comes through in the writing, um, in the way the... Uh, the, the the party the or the I shouldn't say the party the the shiver is captured. Um, it's a, it's just a really ultimately really hopeful and sweet film. But along the way, um, you just are holding your eyes, wondering what awful thing's going to happen to this poor woman next. But all the time, there's this humanity and there's this uh, sweetness about the film that that also plays out as well. So, um, in limited release is Shiver Baby. I'd heard of it. Yes, I got your text about it and was and was super keen. I knew it had been a film festival hit. It had played a couple of festivals already, and I had missed it. So I was so glad that it delivered on on the promise that you made about it and that that other festival goers had. So if you can see Shiver Baby, it's in limited release around the country. Two things that I really enjoyed about it. One, I've never sat shiver before, so I've never been in one of these environments specifically. But I, And I presume this is probably exactly what it's like for a shiver. But I like that the girl in this and even her parents are coming to it not really quite knowing the person that's died very well. The lead, like she didn't even really know the person. Like she had to ask exactly who is this person that we're going to. But they're coming out for the community rather than necessarily for the person who's passed. And you get the feeling lots of people in a room are doing the exact same thing. 
The other thing I liked, and you mentioned about how the shot is coming closer and closer on her as the film goes on, the idea of space. I mean, we talked about the beach in old, which is as a fairly confined space, but like it was a very broad open space. Whereas this is deeply confined and you really are stuck mm. in this very small room. They get smaller and smaller. And just as it could not get smaller enough, they leave and then go to an even smaller space. Like it is so well conceived. I love this film so much. Yeah, yeah, it's a great film. Try and see it on the big screen. If not, it'll be on your small screen soon enough. But um, yeah, it, it's one of my favourite for the year. For us children of the 80s, they're back. He-Man, Masters of the Universe, Revelation. Dan Barrett's had a look at it, mate. Still know the tune? Some things you can never forget. Masters of the Universe, Revelation poses an interesting question. My fellow children of the 80s grew up loving this terrible cartoon. He-Man and the Masters of the Universe was there to sell us toys. Yes, the designs of the characters and world are really something quite special, but the actual cartoon itself was badly animated, with trite stories and voice work that was ordinary at best. But what this cartoon asks is, what if they could actually deliver on a show in the spirit of that original series, but improve its weaknesses? What if the He-Man cartoon could actually deliver the sort of high-quality animated storytelling us kids thought we were watching back in the day? And in terms of that conceit alone, the new series is a success. Note that the show is now titled Masters of the Universe without He-Man as a titular character. That's intentional. The new take on He-Man begins with the hero facing off against the villain Skeletor in what's to be seen as their final battle. By the end of the episode, the story of He-Man and Skeletor has been told, ending with great sacrifice. What follows is a series that does follow the supporting cast as they live on in a world that was saved, but deals with the ramifications of that battle. The storytelling in this is stronger, characters are given slightly more texture, and the animation's finally befitting of the wild fantasy visual aesthetic of the toy line and original animated series. If that's all you're looking for from this animated series, you'll be very happy with what Kevin Smith, yes, that Kevin Smith, and the rest of the production team have captured here for Netflix. The first season is just five episodes, but there'll likely be more to come if this is well received. Now, while the show may be doing justice to the original idea of the show, I don't know that it's doing justice to the audience. The audience for this reboot series is the kids of the 80s who grew up on this junk. And I don't say junk derisively. I watched and enjoyed the show growing up. I suddenly had enough nostalgia for it that I remember buying the fancy DVD set of the original show when that was released early in the DVD boom of the new millennium. And this places the bulk of the audience watching it in their late 30s going into their early 50s. Yes, this audience might be watching it with their kids, but I doubt there's a lot of that. The audience will mostly be watching in the exact same way that I did, alone at night after their wives or partners have gone to bed. <laughs> Masters of the Universe Rev Revelations is an interesting conceptual idea, but the audience for the show are now adults. If you're making a show for adults, why not actually make the show adults? While the quality of the show has been improved, it's still very much the exact same show. It's juvenile storytelling, and when the show does aim for greater maturity, it's never aimed anywhere above the age of some of the older kids who are watching the show initially. Kids aren't watching Revelations. Not really. Why not actually tell a mature story with these characters? Sword and Sandal epics traditionally weren't made with child audiences in mind. And I couldn't help but wonder why I was watching this. There's value in superhero stuff for adults. Those movies and shows tell us something about the world that we live in. Star Wars, it gets a little sketchier in terms of value for adults, but the high fantasy there is sophisticated enough to provide enough nourishment. But Masters of the Universe? The new cartoon still felt like it was selling me a toy line, only with the added question of why a grown man should be buying action figures for himself and not for his kids. I come to this fairly blind. I was not a He-Man Masters of the Universe fan. In fact, my first sort of 
um, weighing in on the whole concept was the Dolph Lundgren film, which is clearly one of the worst bits of cinema ever made. Look, it is. So, I love it um, so, though. Yeah, I've seen a lot. I've seen it plenty of times. So uh, to hear that Kevin Smith is involved with this suggests that there's a real sort of fan passion about it. Um, the animation I've seen certainly harkens back to to what I know of the the eighties uh, cartoon. Um, keen that Netflix have got behind it and they've and have given Kevin Smith free reign to to do what he wants with it. So um, yeah, I might weigh in on and have a look. I think it's a bit sort of past my prime, and uh, without children in the house, it's a little hard to sort of bolster you know sort of muster up the enthusiasm to check it out but um just because i'm a professional critic i'll have a look at it look i don't even understand why kids would want to watch it so the very beginning of it like it really is the end of a story and then the main things that would drive kids to watch it are kind of gone by the end of that first episode this is made for adults but the storytelling as i said it's just so juvenile i just don't know what people are getting from it that said fans have been watching the show and the fan critics that I've seen have gone gaga for it. So there's certainly an audience for it, but you know, mileage will vary, I guess. Simon Foster, I understand that HBO had a very popular, well-received series called Chernobyl. I am of the understanding this is based on a true story, question mark, but there's a new one called Chernobyl 1986. Alexei has a, a little condition to make before he dives. Will you discuss it? Condition? What condition? No, it's not a condition, more of a request. My son was next to the plant when it exploded. Mm. Can he also be sent to Switzerland for treatment? The thing is, the list will be approved by the general secretary personally, and this list should only include liquidators. But it wouldn't be hard for the general secretary to just take a box, given that they didn't have to evacuate Kiev. Mm. I wish it was that simple, but you don't really grasp how bureaucracy works. In much the same way James Cameron took the great human tragedy that was the sinking of the Titanic and turned it into a kitschy teen romance, so too does the Russian film industry put a romantic spin on the worst nuclear accident in history with the love story slash disaster epic Chernobyl 1986, or Chernobyl Abyss, or just Chernobyl, depending on what part of the world you're watching it in. The one saving grace about Titanic is that it didn't star James Cameron. No such luck here with uh, boisterous alpha male Danila Kozlovsky directing and casting himself as firefighter Alexei Kakpushin. The film begins on a shy hairdresser named Olga, played by Oksana Akinshina, but quickly casts her situation aside to chart the puckish heroism and manly exploits of Alexei and his central role in fighting the Reactor 4 blaze. Um, Olga is a single mother who has raised a 10-year-old son, her boy, who turns out to be Alexei's from a fling they had a decade ago. Now, spitting in the face of accepted Bechdel test standards, the film would have you believe she is only truly complete when Alexei re-enters her life and bullies her into accepting him back. Now, the explosion of the reactor at about the 50-minute mark spins the film into a more genuinely interesting dramatic direction with disaster movie tropes backed by big effects budget taking over. Uh, the evacuation of the population, birds falling from the sky, the effects of radiation on first responders, all the things that HBO did with their award-winning series last year, complete with slimy bureaucrats and sturdy blue-collar types. The back half of the film is heroic action cinema 101 with Alexei part of the dive team sent to release steam and water pressure from under the explosion site. Just as challenging is sticking with the film to this point, which clocks in at a whopping 140 minutes. It's on Netflix in all territories. Chernobyl 1986 is a little bit late to the party in terms of disaster movie um, and variations on the Chernobyl story, so not really worth that much time. Do you know how the film was actually received in Russia? Because there's certainly value in people being able to tell their own stories. 
Well, it was uh, a major theatrical release in its homeland, so um, it does for the Chernobyl disaster in in many regards what Titanic did for for um, the sort of Western culture. It is. Uh, a spin on the disaster and a, and a take on that terrible tragedy uh, from a very cinematic, uh, very sort of tropish perspective. Um, uh, the story of the fireman as the hero and the wife um, and mother that he leaves behind is uh, is fairly central, fairly generic, and that's how it's played out in the film. But it was a big budget movie, and that is sort of up there on the screen as well. It looks great in parts, uh, but just the lead actor is... Um, that sort of uh, vodka-swilling male Russian stereotype that um, Western audiences maybe just see far too much in their depiction of, of Russian life. So uh, in that regard, it's it's um, a, a very much a B-movie. Now, Simon, before we wind up reviews, I just want to do a very quick look at a couple of things which I talked about on a podcast recently. The series Loki, uh, I'd watched that first episode, people may remember my review. Like quite a number of people, I wasn't entirely gone on that first one, but I got distracted. I didn't actually really keep up with the series until over the weekend, and I thought I'd catch up because there was lots of positive conversation about the series. And I have to say, if you were like me and you weren't entirely sold on that first episode, and you are a bit of a Marvel person, so I think I've watched every Marvel production, and it was only on this one that I fell behind a little bit. I'm glad that I did catch up because Loki, low-key... Oh God, I can't even believe I did that. Loki for the season finale, in a lot of ways, Simon, the season finale of Loki is kind of the Rosetta Stone that you're going to need to understand what's happening in all the Marvel films going forward. So you may have heard in terms of production of these films, like the new Spider-Man film is going to have multiple Spider-Man actors and various villains from the various Spider-Man universes all coming together. You're going to start seeing that in a whole bunch of the other films coming up. The new Doctor Strange movie is called The Multiverse of Madness. That's because you're going to have multiple universes with characters all meeting each other. Loki, it explains what's going on here. And I don't want to explain what's going on exactly if you haven't watched it, but I definitely think check out the Loki series. It got much better from that first episode. And by the end of the season, it gets very talky, but it's going to be highly important to know what's going forward. Interesting. Yeah, I didn't see it. I know there was a real buzz about uh, Richard E. Grant's appearance in the show. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I'm very keen to see where where that goes. I was a fan of Loki, but like you, I sort of just drifted away from it. I will return to it. Like I didn't return to the Winter Soldier thing. I just did that sort of fade from significance. I know you were a big fan, but um, uh, Loki seems to me something that's that's worth revisiting and worth catching up on. It's definitely a lot of fun there, and you do get to see Richard E. Grant running around in a very silly costume and having a great deal of fun doing that. So well worth taking a look there. And if you haven't seen Winter Falcon and Winter Soldier, probably worth swinging back, but it's not necessarily going to be integral for going forward. All you need to know is that the Falcon became Captain America at the end. Spoiler the, <laughs> the other one that you got excited about was Run the World. Now, how did that wrap? Yeah, so people may remember this. This was the African-American Sex in a City series. From beginning to end, I thought it was a um, stable, funny worthwhile comedy if an african-american sex in a city sounds like something you might enjoy definitely give this one a look i just wanted to point out there's one episode that happens i think it's eight episodes all up and it's maybe episode five or six it's a terrible episode of television it's the only bad episode really of the run so if you are watching it maybe just bypass this one entirely but it's this entire episode that's based around the idea of therapy now, none of these characters have talked about seeing their therapist at all, let alone in this episode where you find out that all four women visit the same therapist who's played by Rosie O'Donnell. Rosie O'Donnell brings nothing to the show except for the question, why is a show that's about black empowerment suddenly dealing with a white therapist who's telling them how to solve all their problems? Big question mark. 
Anyway, well worth checking the show, but do skip that episode because it's garbage. And the final thing I wanted to point out is Ted Lasso. The world has gone crazy for Ted Lasso. I don't know if you've given a look. I have not, no. And as a football fan and as a Jason Sudeikis fan, I'm shamed. But no, I will be checking it out ahead of the season two launch. Yeah, look, I watched the first episode and I was a bit sleepy when I watched it and it just didn't really quite grab me. So I never really stuck with it. I really wish I had because the hype for this show is absolutely Mm. deserving. This is such a marvelously charming, low-key, human, funny, good-natured series check this out. It's kind of exactly the show that I think the world's looking for right now. And that's the reason why everyone who's been watching it has gone gaga for the series because tonally it is so nice and pleasant that it's unlike really any other show on the air right now. Like it's fantastic. It's season two kicks off this current, uh, this coming weekend and people will be very excited about that. It'll roll out weekly. But if you haven't checked out Ted Lasso and you're a bit tired of hearing it and if like me, you're like, I'm sure it's okay. I'll get to it at some point. Do get around to it. It actually is really pretty good. So stop being so cynical, people. Embarrassingly, I watched the new M. Night movie, Old, I Got to the End, and suddenly a twist happened, and I forgot that M. Night does twists. And then I hit my forehead. I'm like, of course there's a twist. What am I doing here? Simon, we've discussed the M. Night uh, movies. We've discussed Old. But he's known for these twists, and I think you're going to run us through some of the what you're calling the five best and the worst one of his various twists. Yeah, look, I've been a Shyamalan fan for a long time. Um, I'm going to go through what I consider the five best. Now, this may shock a few people because he's famous for one in particular, um, and the others have sort of had varying degrees. But this is just my personal opinion, and I'm going to end off with what I think was the worst Shyamalan final real flip out. Now, at number five, I'm (laughs) going to put The Sixth Sense. Now, I know that was the one that put his twisty tail on the map, but The Sixth Sense for me, um, in which we discovered that, and look, we should point out that this is very much a spoiler special. If you haven't seen The Sixth Sense at some time in the last 30-odd years, then really should catch up by now. But we are going to spoil the ending for a bunch of... 22. How many? 22. 22 years. I thought it was more than that. But let's, let's just say that if you haven't seen it by now... Do get out and see it. Pause the podcast here and go and watch all these movies and come back. Um, The Sixth Sense, I saw it coming. Um, When you shoot your lead actor in the first five minutes of the film and you don't play out as to why that that happened or how he recovered from it or anything, you sort of know where it's going. So the big twist ending at the end of The Sixth Sense, I kind of pick. So I put that at number five. Um, Do you have fond memories of The Sixth Sense? You must have been a wee lad when that came out. Oh, look, I was a young buck, about 19, when I went and saw that film. Look, I really enjoyed it. Like that came out, actually maybe it was like 98 rather than 99. It was definitely pre-Fight Club. Because Fight Club, spoiler alert, also has a little bit of a twist towards the end. And I remember picking the Fight Club twist like maybe about like 10 minutes before the revelation on it. Uh, Sixth Sense, I didn't see Mm -hmm. it coming. And I had the revelation in the cinema chair and I was like, ah, and then had that great experience so many other people did. So I had that, but I never felt the need to go back to it because so much of that film felt like it was just predicated on that twist rather than the film itself supporting anything other than I will give I will give Shyamalan credit that when you do watch Sixth Sense the second and third time, you do see some very um, clever sort of storytelling twists in there and his use of... Um, dialogue and his use of setting and and sort of they did give you clues that you just weren't looking for at the time so I'm going to leave it at number five it's a great film and one of my favorite films but um, I I did see the twist coming at number four I have the Mel Gibson Shyamalan pairing signs this is the um, alien invasion story another film that leaves 
that uses structure and uses clues and a twisting, turning sort of plot line to, to build up to an ending where all of that comes together. It's about destiny. It's about fate. Um, those of you will remember Joaquin Phoenix uh, in a tin foil hat swinging a baseball bat. Um, the big question that comes out of Signs, uh, and for those of you who haven't seen it, it ends with the aliens being defeated by water. Um, why extraterrestrials would target a world covered entirely in their kryptonite is one question the script doesn't answer but um, the way it plays out in the living in Mel Gibson's living room is a very exciting ending and and, and one of the ways his his films come together just nicely you were a fan of signs oh, look I'm a huge fan yeah. of signs I actually rewatched it for the first time a couple of months ago the thing I was struck with with that is that we talk about there being the twist of the water but like it's not really that much of a twist it just kind of plays mm. out like it's no it's not it doesn't shape uh, like tip the film over on its head in a way that I think the other films tend to with their various twists what I really like about that film is that it's so low key it takes place in this farmhouse in middle America somewhere um, I'm not sure if they explicitly say where it is but I do enjoy that the ending is even more low-key than everything else that's taken place. Like, it's high tension, but it really just takes place in the basement of this house that you've been spending your entire movie through. So, I don't know. I, I like the fact that it is so big an idea and that it's about an alien invasion, but it keeps the stakes so small and it's so isolated around that And family. it also has one of the great jump scares of any film when the uh, home video footage of the kids' party in Brazil shows the alien <laughs> oh, walking across. Man, I just jumped out of my chair when that happened. My number three film is Split. Now, this was a film that came out of nowhere um, and uh, caught James McAvoy at his wildest and craziest. He plays the beast. Now, he... Um, kidnaps Anya Taylor-Joy. Uh, he goes through a whole lot of uh, sort of serial killer tropes in in keeping this young girl trapped in a basement. And, and uh, James McAvoy um, sort of personifies all these incredible uh, personalities. But then at the end of the film, um, and it was a, a jaw-dropping moment that kept Twitter going for days, Shyamalan Lemon creates a, sort of his version of a of Marvel Cinematic Universe by taking characters from one studio, Disney, um, and lending them to, to Universal, because this film was shot under the Universal banner. But uh, he introduces Bruce Willis, um, the character from another Shyamalan film, um, David Dunn, and we'll get to the film he was in soon, uh, at the end of the film. And suddenly you've got this sort of twisting, turning multiverse of itself. So I thought the ending of Split was, was terrific, and that one got a real surprise. I thought this movie was thoroughly stupid. <laughs> But I quite like that ending scene. <laughs> sure, sure. A film that isn't often spoken of when, when we sort of revisit Shyamalan's film is one of his recent ones called The Visit. This was his um, very bare bones, found footage type film in which two young children visit their um, grandparents, but things start to unravel and start to become sort of not as they seem. Um, the end of this film, this one featured the great uh, Catherine Hahn as the kids' parents who communicated with them via uh, Zoom all the time. Um the twist at the end of this film, if you haven't seen it, pause here and go off and have a look at it, um, is that these aren't the kids' grandparents. These are just two nuts who picked them up from the train station and are keeping them hostage in the house. So uh, you, I did not see this coming, and when it played out, um, there was a, a, a noticeable gasp in the audience. So The Visit um, is, a, is a terrific little film that after some of his, after some of Shyamalan's sort of big-budget studio de- 
disasters like After Earth and The Last Airbender, he returned to this smaller kind of film and it absolutely su- suited him. You can see him being rejuvenated by the by the format. I really wish I'd watched that. Oh, one I know. Now. You should. Oh, you haven't seen it. Sorry, I spelt that for you. Number one, I think the best <laughs> twist and the best ending to a Shyamalan film is Unbreakable, uh, in which Samuel L. Jackson um, plays the antithesis of the Bruce Willis character. This is David Dunn, who shows up at the end of Split. Um, He is unbreakable, whereas Jackson's glass, as the name suggests, is very breakable. The story is that in in our world, there is a yin to every yang. There is a... um, uh, uh, for every superhero, which is the Bruce Willis character who can't be injured, there is someone like Jackson's Glass who can fracture at the drop of a hat. So um, the uh, the twist in the ending here is that Jackson's been trying to prove Willis's existence all along, um, and there's just so many sort of good moments in this beautifully made film. Uh, Unbreakable is my favourite Shyamalan film. Yeah, so this is a film where you've got the Glass character who's really into comic books, and he's always talking about like comic books, sort of mythology. Yep. The thing with comics, and he does talk about this during the film, I think at one point, I don't think it's supposed to be assumed knowledge, uh, but all superheroes always have a version of themselves that is the opposite. So um, Superman, you could look at Lex Luthor maybe, but like the character to look at there more is this character called Bizarro, which is like a pasty white version of him that acts like Superman, but in a backwards kind of a way. The Flash has the reverse Flash, and you've got just these various takes, which are the opposite. And so this film is very much playing on that trope. When the revelation came, because I'm a comic book guy from years ago, I'm like, oh, of course, this is exactly what he's been talking about. Why did I not pick this? <laughs> and to me, like that really elevated a film that I hadn't really enjoyed all that much when I first saw it. I will say on later viewings of that film, I really come to like it quite a bit. That said, my interest in that film has diminished dramatically by the third installment in a series of films, oh, Glass, yeah. which was maybe one of the more painful experiences I've ever had. At yeah, that stunk. That stunk terribly. The worst twist ending for me, and I know we're going to differ on this, you've mentioned it already, is The Happening, the Mark Wahlberg film. First of all, you've got to buy he's a science teacher. I don't buy that at all. Um, In this one, it's revealed that the plants are turning back against mankind. The plants have given us long enough to ruin the planet, so they are now releasing toxins which have been carried on the wind and bumping people off along the way. Um, It is so utterly ridiculous the last 15 minutes of this film just had me giggling in my seat and rolling my eyes in equal measures so can you defend the happening i know you're going to but i want to hear this sorry you were giggling in your seat and rolling your eyes back was that not the point (laughs) maybe maybe it was maybe he's achieved greatness with his ridiculousness here's the thing like it is not a tour excite well i mean i found it exciting in just the fact that it is a ridiculous over the top Uh, I I don't really want to say camp, but it kind of verges on that in a horror sort of a way. Like it is made to be completely ridiculous and for you to revel in just like how, how gorgeously silly it is. I, I agree with that. I think he gets that right in old. I think he sort of leans into the ridiculousness. Um, I don't think he successfully did that in happening. Maybe he wasn't. Maybe he was still sort of governed by his ego there, which by all accounts is fairly spectacular. Um, with old, he seems to be having a lot more fun than he ever did in the happening. All I know is that my now wife and I, we went to see that movie on a Friday night. We had a couple of beers in hand which we'd snuck into the cinema because we weren't really allowed to do that. And we had one of the greatest times I've ever had at the cinema. That was the screen-watching middle bit. Um, I hope we haven't spoiled too many Shyamalan films for you. Do get out and see some of his work. Because I think he really is a, a, an extremely talented filmmaker, a great craftsman who can uh, more often than not pull off these these uh, fairly loopy storylines. That was the screen-watching middle bit. <laughs> 
Simon, as we do on the podcast, we take a look at the week ahead. Uh, very quickly, in terms of new series, it's a bit of a quiet week. And a big reason for that is we've got the Olympics kicking off this mm. weekend. And as a result, nobody really wants to put sort of big titles up against the Olympics because that's where people are watching things. That said, there is one big title, which is Ted Lasso's Season 2. Well worth a look, and that's there on Apple TV+. Plus. Other series that you might want to check out is the kids' cartoon. It's called Chippendale Park Life. And I'm a big fan of the Chippendale Rescue Rangers from the early 90s. Unfortunately, there's no rescue ranging taking place here. It is just purely in a New York City park. And we've also got Sky Rojo, which is season two debuting on Netflix. But there's some movies as well. Yes, over at Netflix, there's a film called Blood Red Sky. This is a story of a woman who, uh, despite having a mysterious illness, is forced into action when a group of terrorists attempt to hijack a flight that she's on. Uh, Looks interesting. Great trailer for it. The last letter from your lover is a new film starring Shailene Woodley and Felicity Jones, a couple of big names. Um, This is a uh, a sort of a mystical love story, very much like The Lake House or Somewhere in Time. If you're a fan of those romantic fantasies, then this was worth having a look at. And Kate Beckinsale is on Amazon Prime Video in a film called Jolt, in which he plays a bouncer who goes on a revenge-filled rampage after the murder of a friend. This is Beckinsale uh, beefed up and dolling out the bopping on the head like she does so well in her action film. So big Beckinsale fan, looking forward to seeing that one. Yeah, all three sound pretty fun in their own way. Blood Red Sky, the film about a woman who's fighting off terrorists on an overnight flight, I kind of like the idea of that when it was called Turbulence or Turbulence 2 or Turbulence 3. <laughs> yes, I'm not claiming any of these films have too much originality about them, but you're right. Uh, it's a premise that has worked well in the past. I wouldn't say well. <laughs> there, now, Simon, while we're in lockdown Sydney and we shout out to our lockdown friends in Melbourne and Adelaide, there is other cinemas around the country, like Brisbane, for example, has cinemas, and they've got things playing, such as Snake Eyes, G.I. Joe Origins. Yeah, we weren't able to see this one. This is one of the big American summer releases, uh, the rebooting of the G.I. Joe franchise. Uh, Australian actress Samara Weaving in there. Henry Golding plays Snake Eyes. It's the story of a a, a tough loner who's saved by a a Japanese um, sensei cult i guess you could say who turn him into a ninja warrior um but then they turn against him and he's on his own and has to fight back um action looks spectacular no previews for us here in sydney get out and see it if you're in other states and let us know what it's like also doing the rounds is hayao miyazaki's 20th anniversary sessions of spirited away one of the greatest animated films ever made it's playing at dendi and palace and some hoyts and event locations if you haven't seen spirited away on the big screen um, this is a wonderful chance to do so hey something else which isn't on our rundown here but i just remembered it uh, if you're in Brisbane, check out at the Goma Cinematheque on Wednesday, July 28th. That's screening a Crystal Mazelle film, Skate Kitchen. Now, if you've seen the new HBO series, Betty, which is about some teenage skateboarders, uh, essentially Skate Kitchen's like the template, the blueprint oh, okay. really for what the Betty series is. So uh, definitely check that one Wonderful. out. Wonderful. This week in history, boy, there's been some crazy things going on this week in history. On July 23 in 1982, that was the day that that Vic Morrow and the child actors Renee Chin Chen and Micah Din Lee were killed by a helicopter during the filming of John Landis's Twilight Zone episode. Um, that became one of the most bitterly fought uh, court cases in Hollywood history. Uh, Landis was finally found uh, not responsible for the actions, but it's haunted him ever since. Yeah, and just to clarify, you refer to it as an episode, but it's like a segment in the Twilight Zone. Exactly right, yes. From 1982, yeah. 
1991, and gosh, I can't believe that this isn't a national holiday. Uh, <laughs> July 26, 1991, Paul Rubens, a.k.a. Pee Wee Herman, he was arrested in Florida for exposing himself in an adult oh movie theatre. Oh, my theater. God. But, I mean, really, it's an adult movie theatre? Who hasn't done that? On July 27, 1940, Bugs Bunny Wait, debuts what? in A Wild Hair, the first time we saw Bugs Bunny on screen. And uh, with Space Jam doing good business around the world, it's uh, we celebrate the birth of the Bugs. And July 28, 1973, Farrah Fawcett Majors became Farrah Fawcett Majors because she married the $6 million man himself, Lee Majors, at the Hotel Bel Air in Los Important Angeles. day for everyone. Birthdays this week, July 23, a man named Woody Harrelson, one of your favourites from your favourite show, Cheers. He was born in 1961 in Midland, Texas. Sorry, I was going to say one of your favourites from Han Solo, oh, a Star right, Wars story. back off. July 24, 1969, <laughs> Jennifer Lopez was born in the Bronx. July 24, Australian actress Rose Byrne was born in 1979. Uh, the multi-talented Stanley Kubrick, who passed away in 1999, he was born on July 26 in 1928. And happy birthday for July 26, 1964, a young actress named Sandra Bullock came into the world in Washington, D.C. Yeah, young film ingenue. She's going to she go places. Simon Foster, let's get out of here. This is the end of screen watching. Thank you, folks, for listening. I'm Dan Barrett. You can find me on Twitter at the Dan Barrett. You can start your day with my free newsletter, Always Be Watching at alwaysbewatching.com. It's got the big stories in TV, streaming, and film. And on Fridays, I send out the Always Be Streaming newsletter, which recounts the big shows that launched that week. You can read all my writings over at screen-space.net. Uh, I'm on Twitter at, at SimonRFoster1. Visit the Screen Watching Facebook page. I'm posting on there pretty often uh, at Screen Watching Podcast. And do get along to my uh, website for the Sydney Science Fiction Film Festival. Some big news coming out about that over the weeks ahead. Um, very exciting times. And you can follow the Screen Watching Podcast via your favourite podcast app. Load it up now, hit the follow or subscribe button and the podcast will just flow into your inbox. How fantastic. Damn, Barrett. Simon Foster, let's get out of here. This has been a fantastic Screen Watching. Uh, we need a stinger at the end here where we can sort of go like, uh, uh, thanks, Ubu, sit. Or sit, Ubu, sit. One of those sort of things. That's what we should do. But anyway, we'll discuss that off air when the podcast is over. Bye, Dan. Yeah, we do need a vanity card. <laughs> See you, Simon. 